This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 103. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today's guest is Jason Heath, one of Canada's best-known fee-only financial planners. You've probably seen him in all sorts of different media here in Canada over the years. He's a certified financial planner, so a CFP, and he's been providing financial planning for over 20 years. He is currently a personal finance columnist for the Financial Post, Money Sense, and is also a regular contributor to RetireHappy.ca. I've been reading his insightful financial planning articles for years at this point, so it's really great to have him on again. And in this episode, we get his perspective on how much do you actually need to be financially independent here in Canada and have the option of retiring, as well as what is the process that should be undertaken to figure this out. Next, we get his take on how to live off your investment portfolio by withdrawing a sustainable amount every year, along with some alternatives to the 4% rule, which, as likely you already know, has some limitations. And we actually go through the process and calculations that he does annually with clients to ensure that they are withdrawing a sustainable amount from their portfolio every year. And we discuss how you can do it yourself in case you're purely DIY and want to do it all yourself and not have to meet with a financial planner every year. Also, since Jason has been doing fee-for-service financial planning for over 20 years now, we talk about the patterns that he's noticed between those that are successful financially and in life in general, long-term, versus those that are not. And we hone in specifically on the things that you and I can actually control and do in our own lives to help get us there too. So enjoy the episode. It's great having you here. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you leave the show a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And now let's get into the interview. All right, Jason, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Cornell. Now, Jason, for anybody hearing of you for the first time, can you take us through your background and your different areas of expertise? Yeah, sure thing. So I've been practicing as a fee-only certified financial planner since 2002, Cornell. Time flies, 20 years. Basically, a fee-only financial planner, or at least my definition of a fee-only financial planner is somebody who provides advice for a fee, but does not sell products. And that's been sort of harder to identify as of late because there are a lot of investment advisors who are fee-based. There's no real restriction on who calls themselves fee-only. So often I'll refer to myself as an advice-only financial planner. The main thing is I don't sell mutual funds or insurance, just sell my advice and my time, sort of like a lawyer or an accountant. I started my company about 11 years ago. We provide financial planning, I would say with a retirement focus though. We also do tax planning, tax preparation even, work with clients all over Canada. Even before Zoom was a thing, we were doing Skype and other sort of methods. And we actually have a lot of expat clients, interestingly. Beyond my sort of day job, I've got a few side gigs. I'm a personal finance columnist for the Financial Post, for Money Sense, and for Canadian Money Saver. So I do a lot of stuff in the media, which I love to do, including podcasts like this. And all of my content is consolidated on our website in a blog at objectivefinancialpartners.com, Objective Financial being my company. 
Awesome. I find that's an interesting challenge in Canada. I imagine other countries as well, but just in Canada, I've noticed that there are definitely many financial planners who will call themselves fee-for-service because that's been in the media a lot. That has now a good brand sort of behind it, for lack of a better word. It has this positive association, I guess, would be the better term to use. And it's a little tricky, I find, because I have definitely encountered my fair share of people who claim to be fee-for-service financial planners. And yes, they do offer that as one of their services. Mm -hmm. But once they get the client in the door, then they sort of migrate to this other more hybrid model where now it's like, actually, I can sell you insurance. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so it almost feels a little like bait and switch in some situations where they take advantage this good sort of branding that the fee-for-service profession Canada has gained, but then they're still really selling products at the end of the day. How can someone listening prevent themselves from falling into that kind of a trap? Because you (laughs) seem like a purist with your company. I've never heard anyone say anything about you guys actually doing that sort of shady tactic. (laughs) Yeah. Well, look, I wish I had a good answer. I've met tons of people over the years who've said, oh yeah, I I thought I found somebody like you, but then they really sold products or because there's no real regulation of titles in the financial industry other than in Quebec, although, you know, changes are starting to happen here in Ontario, for example, you know, people can call themselves in a lot of cases, whatever they want. And that's unfortunate. It makes it kind of confusing for consumers. And actually, there's nothing to stop somebody like me from having an affiliation with an investment firm or insurance uh, company or, you know, lots of portfolio managers will offer referral fees to send business to them or, or whatnot. So we're very clear that we don't accept those referral fees. We only get paid by our clients. There really is no way for a client to know unless they ask the question. And look, I'm proud to be a purist and always sit on the same side of the table as our clients. But at the end of the day, I talk to people that are trying to get into this fee-only industry where I say, look, it's tough. It's having an affiliation with an investment firm or insurance company maybe isn't a terrible business model. However, for consumers, they need to be able to ask those questions of those people. They need to know there may be conflicts of interest. And I tell you, it's tough not having a product affiliation. People, especially 20 years ago when I first started, very hesitant to write a check for financial advice. They're much more inclined to do so now. But at the same time, we're competing with people who offer, you know, quote unquote, free financial planning, which is rather watered down compared to what we're doing. And it's not free. You're you're paying for it through the products you're ultimately being sold or buying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find in this space, when you hear the word free, that's usually a red flag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If someone says, oh, we'll do your financial plan. And okay, so you're going to spend hours and hours and hours doing this for free. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> that's just it. And what is a financial plan anyways? For a lot of people, a financial plan is, you know, put money in your RSP, invest in stocks, you know, hold some emerging markets investments. Like it's more an investment strategy, I suppose, than a financial plan. So even the the term financial plan doesn't really have a definition. So there's a lot of vagueness I find for consumers out there. It's unfortunate, but I don't know what to do other than to, to keep sort of promoting the fee for service advice only model. And consumers just need to know to write 
to ask the right questions. Do you sell products? Do you affiliate with any companies who do? Do you get paid referral fees? Things like that. And then are those companies, if you do ask the question, are they obligated to tell you the truth? <laughs> Even that's a good question, Cornell. I, so I've got lots of clients who say, oh, no, my investment advisor doesn't charge me any fees. Oh, they're working for free. You know, <laughs> they're getting How paid. How kind of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to work with one of those. So they're paying for their office out of pocket. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Oftentimes there's embedded fees and products. Even these days, I find a lot of investment advisors are charging a fee as a percentage of your assets. And that fee might be, as an example, 1%, which sounds like a pretty good fee, right? But then they're using investment products that they themselves have embedded fees that might be another 1% or more. Mm -hmm. So you're all in fees 2%. And I've had clients who've asked their investment advisor, what are my fees? And they forget to tell them about the product fees. They just, oh, you just pay 1% or you pay, you know, half percent. I'm, I'm giving you a really good deal. And yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. You know, consumers are blind in a lot of cases when they're working with the financial industry. And that's, I'd say, a bit of a, a knock against us financial advisors and the regulators and government involvement. Consumers have definitely not been put first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like a very much buyer beware sort of environment. Would that be fair to say? I would agree. Mm -hmm. And when somebody is working with a company like yours, where, again, I'll use the word purist, because you don't do that sort of hybrid thing where, oh, we also take a little bit on the side when we sell you insurance. You know, you guys don't do that. What do you do when someone says, okay, this is all great and I love this plan, but now I need to implement it and I still want to know what ETFs I should buy? What do you do in that sort of scenario? It depends. When it comes to investments in particular, one of the things that we try to do with clients is have them understand the pros and cons of managing their own investments versus working with a professional investment advisor. Not everyone is meant to be a DIY investor. It's easier said than done. You know, there are good investment firms out there that charge fair fees and can provide, you know, investment expertise. And there's even good sort of hybrid middle of the road options for someone. For example, you mentioned ETFs. You know, if someone's not ready to press the buy and sell button on their own, there's robo advisor firms that have popped up charging, you know, half percent fees, you give or take, in addition to the embedded ETF fees, which are fairly low as well to manage a portfolio for an investor. And many of them have, you know, no minimum or a very low minimum investment. So it's kind of democratized professional discretionary portfolio management for even smaller investors. So the main thing we try to do is help people understand pros and cons of different options. We can't provide specific security recommendations, so we can't say, buy this iShares ETF or sell that Vanguard ETF, for example. But frankly, I think when it comes to investment strategy, the more important stuff is how much should you be saving? Which accounts should you be contributing to? What are the tax implications? You know, What should your asset allocation be? What about rebalancing strategy? There's a lot of what, in my opinion, is kind of black and white stuff that is much more important than the individual security selection. And the individual security selection can be relatively easy these days with asset allocation ETFs and balanced ETFs, like all in one products where you can mm -hmm. literally buy just a, a single exchange traded fund. 
But again, not everyone's meant to buy their own investments. There's robo-advisors out there. And there's lots of independent, low-cost, fiduciary portfolio managers. The challenge with the portfolio managers, the professional investment management is oftentimes you need $500,000 or more to invest. And lots of people have much less and can't get access to that sort of professional portfolio management, unfortunately. Is that the way it is now in Canada with the regulations that in order to actually have someone that's a fiduciary, you have to kind of be on that higher tier of portfolio size, like the half a million or more? Generally speaking. And I think the challenge is, you know, there's a lot of overhead costs for them to build and run a portfolio management firm. You know, even the the robo-advisors using technology, you know, still have had difficulty in some other countries getting their fees down and keeping those fees down. So it costs money to work with investors. A lot of those costs are due to regulation too. So it's tricky, but there are firms that might accept a quote unquote smaller client with $250,000 to invest. But I find more and more, if you don't have $500,000, it's harder to get that sort of independent fiduciary advice. So Mm -hmm. for smaller investors, newer investors, you know, robo-advisors, DIY investing are options. There are even some relatively competitive, you know, lower cost mutual fund options that are available as well for somebody who wants active management. So I think it's just a matter of doing your research, doing your due diligence and understanding the fees that you're actually paying. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. All right, I want to give a big shout out to Passive for sponsoring this episode. They are free to use and are literally the number one tool that I consistently use to manage all my investments. If you've been investing for any period of time, you know how important rebalancing your portfolio is as that's what allows you to consistently buy low and sell high with your investments as well as ensure that you aren't taking on any additional unnecessary risk. Now, as critical as rebalancing your portfolio is, it's actually a manual and annoying labor-intensive process as to do it correctly, you have to log into each of your household's investment accounts and do manual data entry on a spreadsheet to figure out how much to buy of each investment every single time that you have money to invest. And there's always the chance that you make a mistake and miscalculate something when doing it yourself on a spreadsheet. So these days, when I have money to invest, I simply log into Passive, I immediately see what I'm holding too much and too little of in my portfolio, and Passive automatically calculates how much I need to buy of each ETF to get me back to my target across all of my household's accounts. Then in a couple clicks, I can have Passive buy the investments that I'm holding too little of across all my and my wife's accounts without me having to log in and out of each account to manually do the trades myself. I'm also able to see how my entire household's investment portfolio is doing across all our accounts in just a mouse click instead of manually having to add everything up across all my accounts. So they have a free account that you can use to try them out. And if you are a Quest Trade user like me, you also get their premium account for free. So it's a complete no-brainer. And I've personally been using them for years at this point. So I can definitely vouch for them as they have literally become my number one favorite tool for managing my investments. They saved me many dozens of hours when I'm managing and optimizing my portfolio. So definitely check them out. They are a fantastic Canadian company and you can get your free account by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. Again, that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. 
And now back to the show. And when someone's trying to determine how much they need to be financially independent and have the option of retiring, what is the process that should be undertaken to figure this out? So good question. I'm biased to say, you know, go hire a professional like me. Obviously, that's an option. DIY sort of retirement planning and drawdown strategies are an option, but it can be tricky because it's difficult using a spreadsheet, for example, to factor in taxes, inflation, optimal decumulation if you've got multiple types of accounts because there might be tax implications. And if you're not well-versed in that area, it can be difficult to figure out how to, to do it. But I think that if somebody is trying to do it on their own, for example, coming up with a net worth statement, you know, what are your assets? What are your liabilities? What are your sources of income, including government pensions? And I'll tell you, I'm amazed at how many people who are, are 60 and getting pretty close to collecting their CPP and old age security pensions really don't know how much they're entitled to, how those pensions work, what happens if you take them early or start them late. For a lot of the rules of thumb out there that relate to taking a percentage of your account value, for example, when you're retiring so that you won't run out of money, it doesn't really factor in things like pensions that may start at different points during your retirement, maybe an inheritance somebody is expecting to receive, a home downsize, things like that. So it can be tough using some of the rules of thumb. Expenses, ultimately, I think are the most important thing when you're doing retirement planning, not only your monthly expenses, but extraordinary expenses, you know, car replacement, home renovations, you know, children's weddings, things like that. And, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges is life is very fluid, you know, to sit down when you're 60 and say, okay, here's what I can spend for the rest of my life and I'm going to be okay and never need to revisit it. You know, planning needs revisiting, whether you're working with a professional or doing it on your own. So you can't just set it and forget it. That's a great point. Yeah. When you mentioned the rules of thumb, obviously the 4% rule comes to mind. That's been in the media a lot. A lot of articles written about it, lots of guides. But like you said, that does not factor in things like your CPP, your OAS. Hey, maybe you're eligible for GIS as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have a maybe you're a teacher or police officer and you actually have mm-hmm. defined benefit pension. Well, if those pensions or even the government benefits, if all that takes care of half or more of your expenses, I mean, that's gonna have a huge impact on when you're able to retire. So for sure. That's a very good point. So I'm glad you mentioned that because it'd be a shame for someone to just blindly, let's say, follow the 4% rule, because that's what a lot of people seem to be using. And that seems like a decent number from people that I trust. Okay, great. But there are these other variables that can really have such a substantial impact. I mean, to the point of retiring many years earlier, potentially, because these extra things that are custom to your situation. So Mm -hmm. thank you for bringing that up. One strategy that has really piqued my interest and that I think can be highly relevant for those that have hit their financial independence number is doing some sort of variable withdrawal strategy with a spending ceiling and a floor. When a client comes to you and says that they don't just want to use a fixed withdrawal strategy, like the traditional 4% rule, for instance, and instead they'd like to be able to take out more when the markets are doing well and are okay with drawing less when the markets are not performing well, like right now, (laughs) is there a certain variable withdrawal percentage strategy that you have found to work well or that you're fond of 
you know, along with any particular rules for a spending ceiling or spending floor, or is there maybe something else entirely that you prefer recommending to clients for those that do want, that are okay with you know, how much they can spend per year fluctuating depending on how their portfolio is doing? Mm-hmm. No, good question. So maybe just talk a little bit about William Bengen's 4% rule. I mean, that's one that's been around for a long time, introduced back in 94, I think he first came up with the suggestion that at age 65 or assuming a third year retirement time horizon, you can withdraw 4% of your portfolio value in the first year and then increase the dollar amount every year thereafter with inflation. So to use a simple example, 65-year-old retires with a million bucks, they can take out 4% or $40,000 in the first year of retirement, increasing that 40 grand by 2% inflation or whatever inflation is on an ongoing basis and probably not run out of money. And that's one that a lot of people look to. Morningstar actually did a good analysis, I think in 2017 or 2018, David Blanchett in particular, and suggested that for Canadians, that 4% rule might actually be less. It might be like 25 or 3% as an initial withdrawal rate if you're planning for a 30-year retirement. These sort of variable withdrawal strategies are based on a percentage of your account value each year that depends on how much you've got in stocks, how much you've got in bonds. So rather than saying, okay, 40 grand a year with inflation, that's what I'm going to spend for the rest of my life. In good years, you can take a larger percentage or you're taking a percentage of the account value. In bad years, maybe you're pulling out a little bit less. You know, I find both extremes, like the, the straight, you know, 4% which again is on the high side, as well as this variable withdrawal strategy based on a percentage of your account value are not necessarily in line with how people actually live. Spending will change from year to year. Spending often changes over somebody's life. I mean, if we forget people who retire at, you know, 40 and pursue fire, you know, for a traditional retiree that retires at age 65, Some of the good studies out there show that between 65 and 75, spending declines anywhere from zero to 20%. Zero because there's been some studies in some countries that have shown very little decline in spending during those first 10 years of a traditional retirement and 20%, you know, sort of at the high. And something that worries me is that if you intend to spend the same amount of money early in retirement as your 70s and 80s, that often doesn't come to fruition. Oftentimes, people's spending declines. And using these rules of thumb, you might actually shortchange yourself to a certain extent in terms of how much you're spending earlier in retirement when you might still be sort of in your go-go years and traveling and doing stuff with your kids or with your grandkids. And spending often declines once you get into your 70s. So I actually kind of like trying to model, again, on your own or with a professional, a sort of reasonable retirement spending lifestyle based on your goals and expectations. And it's hard to do that with a rule of thumb. So look, if you took two and a half or three or three and a half or 4% of your portfolio value and took it out, you know, in the first year and indexed it for inflation or you used one of the variable withdrawal percentages that took out more in good years and less in bad years. Are you going to be okay? You know, probably. The challenge, I think, is there's not one right answer as to how to do this. And, you know, something that I've reflected on a lot recently is, 
you know, I've seen personally and professionally people who don't live till 95 years old. And as a financial planner, I'm trying to make sure people's money outlasts them, assuming they live to 95. And you can shortchange yourself sometimes too, by focusing too much on having money in 30 years and not living for today. So it's a real balance. There's financial planning implications. There's also lifestyle implications of any sort of decumulation strategy, Cornell. Yeah. I know with the financial planning software that I use, what's nice about those as opposed to doing these rules of thumb is that you can change all these different variables for different life stages, essentially. So that's more to your point about how it's not just a straight line that you can keep for applying. Sure. Things really change. And then thing, unforeseen things happen too. Maybe you get an inheritance and that yeah. obviously changes the whole model or the numbers and the model completely. How do you do it? Because I find with the software that I use, it assumes still a static rate of return. So if you're, yeah. let's say, like a 100% equity investor, it'll, it'll assume something like 8%. And you can change what it assumes, but you know it's still kind of that. It's assuming a a consistent rate of return that you set year over year. And then it can change it depending if you change your asset allocation, depending on, let's say you're getting older, so you're doing more fixed income, but still it's assuming somewhat static amount. But if that's also inaccurate, right? Because we're going to have one year where we're 20% up and then you know now we're well, down 15-ish, <laughs> right? So it fluctuates so much. And so when I look at that model in my software, at least, it looks very off because it's still assuming 8% per year, let's say, yeah. but there's so much volatility. When you're modeling that out in your software, I'm trying to also approach it from the angle of someone's meeting with fee-for-service financial planner and they are yeah. having their situation modeled out, like what you do professionally. You know, How do you adjust for that, for the fact that, yeah, I might get 8% on average, but year over year, it's going to be <laughs> almost never is it going to be exactly 8%, right? How do you yeah. deal with that in your modeling? I mean, there's different ways to deal with it. There is financial planning software where you can run Monte Carlo simulations of potential portfolio returns where it will take an accumulation of historical rate of return data and run a number of different projections looking at different, you know, volatility good years, bad years, and try to project, you know, what's the best outcome looking at historical rates of return for the investments you're in, what's the worst outcome and try to predict what's the likelihood of the withdrawals you're planning to be successful. You know, is it going to be 100% of the time that your money will still outlast you? Is it 90% of the time? Is it a 50% chance of failure and running out of money. So Monte Carlo analysis is, is one way to deal with that. One of the things that I don't like about focusing too much on Monte Carlo projections is it looks at historical rates of return and the variability of investment returns, but it doesn't necessarily factor in the variability of life of inflation rates jumping to 7% this year, a health condition causing your expenses to go up of a child going through a divorce and needing financial help of you know living for 10 years into your retirement versus 40 years into your retirement. So I find that sometimes people will focus too much on investments and investment returns. And there's a lot of variability when it comes to retirement plan. It goes back to what I said about planning for a 30-year retirement and not running out of money. But 
not having a 30 year retirement and then not doing some of the things you could have or should have or would have done when you were younger, if you knew that you weren't going to have a 30 year retirement. But as a certified financial planner, my governing body, FB Canada, provides guidelines. If somebody is running straight line projections, for example, that do not take into account Monte Carlo projections, these complicated mathematical analyses. And basically, the suggestion is to use a lower rate of return for stocks and bonds to take into account the variability of returns and the potential of having poor returns early on. If anyone is interested, there is an FP Canada guidelines document that is published every April or May, so in the spring. And it provides some good guidelines for financial planners that I think are written in such a way that a layperson who's managing their own finances and trying to make decisions about retirement should read and check out. And right now, for example, the suggested rate of return for Canadian stocks, if you're not running Monte Carlo simulations, I think is 6.3% per year. For foreign developed markets like US stocks, it's 6.8. I can't remember. I think emerging markets is 7.2 or something. So the, even though stocks historically have returned, you know, nine or 10%, depending on 20 or 30 or 50 year period you look at, if you're not taking into account the potential of poor returns early on, you should be downplaying any sort of straight line return projections that you do, Cornell. Thanks for that answer. That's fantastic. Just from a practical standpoint, that's something that any DIY investor can do if they don't have the financial planning software that you know to run all of this themselves. So no, that's great. Or even frankly, just assume 20% downturn in the first year or mark down all your assets by 20% mm-hmm. and run a straight line projection thereafter. There's different ways to to kind of do it. But again, at the end of the day, most of the assumptions are going to be wrong, <laughs> yeah. whether you do it on your own or with a professional. So you're really just trying to look at trend lines, use it for making decisions today that are lifestyle decisions based on financial projections. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. And I'm glad you mentioned the other negative of potentially being too conservative and actually end up maybe with even too much money because you were so afraid of running out. And so you were just ultra conservative all the way through. And then now you've got this sum of money that you could have spent in your healthier years with your grandkids, things of that nature. But because you didn't really plan this out with someone, you just kept holding on and fear that you're going to run out. And then in fact, the opposite happened. Do you find that happens, at least from a lot of the older people that I have talked to and interviewed, when I sort of get their feedback, it seems like I get the impression that quite a few, there are a lot of Canadians where they are so afraid of running out of money in retirement that they get ultra conservative in different parts of their life. And then they pass away or they get unhealthy and they have these giant portfolios that they're now living sort of a life of regret where, oh, I wish 10 years ago before I got the diagnosis, I spent that with my grandkids and now it's just sitting there. Am I just making this up or is this a common thing that you actually see with Canadians? I think it's a legit concern. I mean, I'll share with you very candidly, Cornell. My mother died a few years ago when she was 64. She was diagnosed with a terminal condition and she died the week that 
she turned 66. And I always figured my mother would live to 95 years old. She would be one of those people. And not to say that there were things that she regretted not doing, but it kind of, it shook me more than situations I've seen through other relationships, through other clients, you know, because it was just that much closer and that much more personal. And I've certainly had situations where with clients where the same thing has happened. And again, has caused me to step back as a professional and question, am I telling people to oversave and plan too much for the future? And it's not always a future that you'll actually have. So some of the research out there as well, at least with current retirees, has shown that people do have hesitancy to spend to a certain extent and are not spending as much as they could afford to spend. So in real life, I don't think there's as many current retirees that are running out of money because they withdrawing 5% instead of 4% or some other rule of thumb, right? I don't know if that's more that generation being more prudent with money and more conservative, because certainly the flip side is that a lot of people approaching retirement and certainly younger generations, the suggestion is they're not saving nearly enough for retirement and they're going to be in trouble too. But I just wonder if you get to retirement and that fear of running out of money causes you to change your habits regardless that mm-hmm. you know most people will find a way to make it one way or the other. It's just a matter of whether you can maintain your lifestyle or if you need to cut it significantly. And if there's things you can do now to maintain your lifestyle while still enjoying it a bit. I think that's the best of both worlds. For sure. I hear you. We have very close family member as well that passed away and it was in his early 60s. And I remember that also very much shook me to the core because when we look at the quote unquote traditional retirement age, I think, oh, 65. And so you're doing all this planning and okay, what are we going to do once I retire at 65? That's the common conversation. I think the default conversation for a lot of people. And it's interesting to see the reality where you realize not everyone actually gets to 65. And so to your point about having that balance and not being so laser focused on not running out of money that you kind of miss the the life part before that, because there are so many unknown variables. So very interesting. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. There are so many opinions on how to invest your money today, but it can be hard to find credible voices to rely on in the world of finance and investing. One resource that I turn to every week is the ETF Market Insights YouTube channel led by today's episode sponsor, BMO ETFs. Market Insights brings in industry experts and the weekly episodes cover the hottest themes like inflation, infrastructure, healthcare, and more. Tuning in helps me stay up to date on what's happening so I can be a smarter investor. And you can also submit your own ETF questions to be answered on the show. So do yourself a favor and subscribe on YouTube to ETF Market Insights or visit ETFMarketInsights.com so you can be notified when future episodes go live. And now back to the show. What is the process and calculations that you do annually with clients to ensure that they are withdrawing a sustainable amount from their portfolio every year. My understanding is that sort of the ideal way to tackle this just from past interviews I've done is to basically work with a fee-for-service financial planner like yourself or somebody at your firm where every year the numbers get updated in the financial planning software for that person's particular situation. Then the expertise and analysis of the financial planner is used to determine 
what the withdrawal rate should be for that particular year, you know, based on all these different variables you put in and that you've modeled out into the software. Is that the sort of ideal way, best practice you'd recommend that it's done? Or is do I understand this not correctly? And is there another way that you think is better? It depends. I have clients, Cornell, that I meet with every year and we update retirement projections and collect all their numbers and run those projections and it gives them peace of mind. And as things change, they use it to make decisions. And frankly, I've got people I've done that with for 20 years. And interestingly, some of them are almost exactly where we would have expected 20 years ago. Some of them are in a completely different situation, you know, a year or two later, because life comes at you fast, you know. And then I have other clients that I've never run formal financial planning software projections for where we might be focusing more on strategies like should they be contributing to their RSP or their TFSA or should they invest in stocks and bonds versus real estate where we're monitoring their investment strategy with their investment advisors where we're doing tax planning strategies or looking at insurance needs or estate planning so everyone's a bit different i would say that we don't force people so to speak to update their retirement plan every year but like i said some people will do it sort of religiously so to speak and it gives them a lot of peace of mind so i think that's the thing with with financial planning and financial planners some people will hire a financial planner once in their life and never again others will work with somebody every year and many clients i work with in in quite different ways sometimes in more of like a financial coaching sort of capacity sometimes even as a quasi psychologist i think i i should have paid closer attention in first year psychology and <laughs> in university but i tell you cornell it, it was friday morning at eight o'clock and thursday night was pub night so i tended to sleep in <laughs> did poorly in my psychology class but if only i'd paid closer attention you know Interesting. So just over the years, you've noticed what a giant role the psychology plays in oh, as yeah. opposed to it just being spreadsheets and financial planning software and things sure. of that nature. Especially as people get older and they're involved with different things with their children or with their grandchildren, helping out with home down payments or buying cottage to make sort of space for their family or trying to make decisions about how much to help out their kids with education or a couple trying to time, you know, do we retire at the same time? Does one of us retire early because they mm. hate their job and the other one really likes it? And it's very interesting how some of the conversations that I get called into that I didn't learn about in financial planning school, so to speak. Yeah. I can't see somebody in your profession ever getting bored due to lack of variety because it seems uh -huh. like there are so many, some of the things you mentioned just now, different things that can happen, different priorities. Things are just constantly changing just in people's lives as they go through these different life stages. It seems like there's always something new. And yeah, it yeah. seems like a good profession for that, where it's not just, oh, here's the silver bullet answer. That's correct 100% mm -hmm. of the time. Just do X and, and you're done. That seems to not really be the case. For sure. I tell you, it's one of the reasons I love my job so much. It's one of the reasons I don't sell investments or insurance. I think I would get pretty bored. <laughs> You know, just focusing on such a small subsection of a much broader topic. And the other interesting thing is I'm 
often advising people who are older than me, although it's interesting, having done this for 20 years, I'm starting to get clients who are younger than me. I guess that's how life works. <laughs> yeah. But for many years, I've been advising people older than me and smarter than me in different ways. And I tell you, I'm taking notes. I'm taking notes as I plan my own retirement, as I try to make decisions for my own family. And you can learn a lot just watching people go through these different life stages for things beyond money. Mm -hmm. And it's probably next to impossible to be able to anticipate every possible thing that could happen. And I'm sure you yeah. now being in the industry mm -hmm. and doing this for now decades, you can yeah. kind of keep adding to that list over time where, oh, okay, here's another thing that could happen that we could maybe plan for mm -hmm. just to not be caught off guard, right? By all these different things that could- Oh, for sure. Challenges that can creep up. For those that are more on the DIY side, do-it-yourself side, and they don't want to meet with someone annually, like a financial planner, what approach or process do you recommend for them? For instance, maybe they just want to meet with a financial planner when there are some significant life changes or financial events, like maybe they got an inheritance, they have a new child, they're getting married, or maybe they only want to meet at those kind of big financial impacting milestones. What do you suggest for those DIY individuals? Yeah, I think there's nothing wrong with that. You know, not everybody needs financial planning year in and year out. Arguably, not everyone needs the professional input of, of a financial planner. Hopefully, they could benefit from it. But certainly, some sort of a life event like that, where you might not know the right answers, you might not know what you don't know. I think that's an important part about speaking to a professional. And one of the challenges that I find with a lot of financial advisors, it's because they sell products, they may come at it from the perspective of what they know or what they're selling for that matter. And frankly, even we get brought into situations a lot that are tax driven, where advice that's been given by an accountant, maybe isn't the best ultimate long term advice for somebody. There's a lot of accountants out there that are really good at filing annual tax returns, but not necessarily at tax planning, or they might not understand investment nuances or certain other things. So yeah, look, I think there's definitely a benefit to working with somebody who's got a multidisciplinary expertise, like a financial planner who does more than just investments and insurance. And if nothing else, if you work with a financial planner once and they give you some good tips that you can go off and implement on your own, you may get everything you need for many years or arguably the rest of your life from working with somebody in that sort of capacity. But I'm also surprised some of the clients that I work with year in, year out are not my wealthiest clients, are not my most complicated clients. They're just the people who value having somebody along the way who they can run things by and help them make decisions. So everyone's a bit different. But again, going completely DIY for financial planning, if you're going to do that, just make sure you're gathering lots of information and the obligation is on you to be learning as much as you can and trying to figure out as many answers to questions as you can. So it can be a big responsibility, but everyone's a bit different. Mm -hmm. I always say that no matter how much you what has studied this, like I've been studying this for quite a long time now, you know, big financial nerd kind of guy. And even still, I think it's foolish to say, okay, I know everything there is to know now about subject X, whatever that subject may be. There's always oh, more to sure. learn. Things are always evolving. And I find with money in particular, 
because it's so close to your life, obviously it, it impacts your lifestyle. It can be easy for emotions to creep in or certain biases and things that just maybe from growing up, you were conditioned a certain way. I mean, it's just so many ways things can go wrong. I think even as a DIYer, which I am, it's so valuable to get that second opinion of someone who is not biased, who has their own wealth of experience. It's impossible to have for one person to have every, they know everything, right? That doesn't exist. And so I think it's really nice to get, to be able to utilize someone else's experience if you for service financial planner, that because it's the whole thing about you don't know what you don't know. And because you're so close to it, it can be difficult to see sort of the whole picture sometimes or certain angles, especially when you haven't through those things yourself. Whereas someone like yourself, a fee-for-service planner that's been doing this for so long, has worked with clients of different age groups, you start to see certain patterns and things that you can then kind of warn maybe the younger people or even the older people that, hey, I had a client like this once, here's what happened, here's something that we should maybe think about just so that you're prepared if this happens to you. So yeah, I'm always a big fan of no matter how much of DIY purist you consider yourself, there is always value in having a good fee-for-service financial planner to take that second look at your finances and, and help optimize things. So anyways, I'm a big fan of the work you do. I <laughs> just want to say that. Thanks, <laughs> awesome. I tell you, I'm still learning every day and there's situations I come across where I've got to sort of sit back and reflect or, or call up people or collaborate with my colleagues and get a second opinion as well. So mm-hmm. it's tough. It's not always if X doesn't always equal three, for example, it's not a formula. It's not algebra. When you're making financial decisions, sometimes there's a lot of gray areas that you need to for sure consider a lot of different options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned the psychology thing, but I also think just the nature of the beast is that things do change, whether it's tax regulations and sure. tax rates and yeah. things of that nature. Like, hey, I remember the days when the TFSA did not exist, right? So yeah, right. all this something like that comes up and okay, now that the ripple effect of even something like that is obviously massive. So yeah. it seems that new strategies get born depending on the, even like, I guess more recently, like Canada Child Benefit, for example, right? Yeah. Okay, that comes into existence. Now the tax implications of that and the clawbacks and how do you optimize? Oh, there's yeah. always going to be more to learn and optimize around, right? For sure. So like we already talked about, you've been a financial player now for decades at this point. And I'm sure with that level of experience, you've noticed certain patterns when it comes to clients that are successful financially and in life versus those that are not. Can you give us any insights in terms of the best practices or patterns that you've noticed from those that are financially successful and also appear to be happy and fulfilled in their day-to-day life? I don't want to like just talk about money because okay, you could be some CEO of a company, but be completely depressed and your family hates you. So I really think it's also important to (laughs) say, okay, it's not just about, yes, net worth is important. It lets you do certain things, but there's this whole other thing of, okay, this person looks like they have it figured out more than just financially. Yeah. So, wow. Decades. Wow. (laughs) Loaded question. I know, but I'm sure there's some pattern. (laughs) No, no, no. Repeat it over and over again. I remember when I first started out in my mid-20s, I grew a beard to look older, and I would always wear a suit and a tie, and I needed to look much older. And then before you know it, you become older, and the beard's whiter, and the hair is thinner, and yeah, don't have to worry about that anymore. But look, I think that there's some easy things for sure. Living below your means is really important. There's a lot of people who look 
wealthy, but they really just have a high income or a high credit limit. <laughs> and they're not actually wealthy. I've met a lot of wealthy people that do not appear to be so from the outside because they're not living flashy. Ignoring the markets, I think, is really important. I think one of the things that bugs me the most about the financial industry is how focused the business section of the newspaper or financial advisors or a group are on the ups and the downs of the markets, which are impossible to control, very difficult to predict. And I think the less you pay attention to the ebbs and flows, the, the better. We talked a little bit about living for today and saving for tomorrow and trying to balance those things and not sacrificing too much in the short term. Now, interestingly, I have found that working longer than you need to isn't necessarily a bad thing if you're doing something that you like and you're doing it on your own terms. I've seen people who have worked into their 70s, you know, and sometimes not even for money. Maybe it's working in a volunteer type capacity or a fraction of what somebody could be earning, but are happy and healthy and fulfilled, keeps your mind engaged. In that regard, I hope that I always work, always is maybe an exaggeration, that I work and sort of phase into retirement over time and, and can still do some of the media and other things that, that I do well past the traditional retirement age. I think the right marriage <laughs> is very important or staying married for people who are, are in relationships and kids and grandkids are a real blessing. Not everyone is lucky enough to have children or to have a big family, though, obviously. And probably the biggest thing that I have noticed over the years, Cornell, that might be surprising to people is it almost doesn't matter how much money you have. Everyone worries about money. And sometimes they worry about how much they're giving away and they worry about their children inheriting it. They worry about their son or daughter-in-law taking advantage. It's crazy. I mean, it's better oh, to have I see. much. Okay. It's better to have too much than not enough money for sure. But boy, everyone worries about money. It doesn't matter how much you have and how old you get. And it's hard to get to that Zen place where yeah, you're not worried about your money in some capacity. And you said when they're worried about giving it away, it sounds like you're talking in the context of to grandchildren, like, am I ruining them by just children, grandchildren, donations, you know, timing of giving that money away, how their estate will be settled and how complicated it might be. I mean, all all kinds of things. Like I said, it's strange. There's not for anyone who's pursuing financial independence, whether it's the Freedom 45 plan or, or 75 plan, you know, it's not like you get to a million dollars, whatever your number is. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, everything's great. Mm-hmm. Sadly, it doesn't work that way. So it sounds like the stressors or the things that now occupy your headspace in the financial changes. space just changes, does not yeah. actually disappear. So you're saying even if someone's like tens of millions of dollars, yeah, they still weird. have financial concerns. They're just different. Am I making good choices? Am I mm-hmm. investing my money in the right way? Am I paying too much in fees or taxes? It's weird. It just changes what you you worry about. It's very interesting. Yeah, just how the human mind works. It's almost like it just finds, you'll find something to worry about. (laughs) Yeah. Do you find too, in terms of the wealthier that, because you mentioned about 
worrying about the giving away things and charity, is there kind of a thing of guilt as well? Like, oh, am I donating enough? Am I doing enough? Does that come into play too? In some cases, yeah. Or people being hesitant about giving away too much when they should be giving it to their kids or people Mm. who don't want their kids to get it that everyone's a little bit different, I think, in that regard, for sure. And, And even sort of timing of giving money. There's some people who really like to give money to their kids during their lives and see them use it and when they really need it. And others who are very hesitant to do so, maybe in part because they're worried about running out of money. But that has drawbacks too. Mm -hmm. having your kids inherit a bunch of money when they're 60 and probably could have used it earlier, or maybe not being well versed in money. And all of a sudden, they need to make big decisions with big dollars involved. Right, right. Very interesting. And then on the flip side, are there any common major mistakes or regrets that you've seen clients have over the years that we can all learn from so that we don't repeat those same mistakes in our own lives? Yeah. If I just think about recent meetings that I've had with clients, funny, I met with a client yesterday, 70 or 71 years old, DIY investor, made a bunch of money buying penny stocks, lost a bunch of money buying penny stocks. And the big regret was thinking that he was outsmarting the market or had some way to print money, something that he regretted and just kind of stepped back and become more conservative. Mm. I think of a situation that I had this summer with a prospective client who reached out to me and he was terminally ill with cancer. He was on his deathbed literally and talked to him a week or two before he died. And he said, Jason, you know, I'd followed you for years. I'd always wanted to reach out and get some advice. I had always wanted to get my family more involved in finances and always delayed it and delayed it until I retired. And here I am. I'm not going to get a chance to retire. And I think it's more just the concept of delaying and planning for a future that may or may not actually come. We've reflected on that a lot during this podcast, Cornell. And successful, wealthy people, I find, use money for life or family satisfaction rather than material things. You know, there's been great studies that have shown the satisfaction that somebody gets from vacation or paying for something that saves them time, like a housekeeper or something like that is a much better return on investment, so to speak, than a fancy car or some other sort of consumer good. So again, just little things that that I've picked up that I try to implement in my own life as well. Mm-hmm. That's great. And then you mentioned a bit earlier how some of your clients are quite wealthy, others are not. What have you noticed that the wealthy do that the poor and middle class do not? Again, living below your means, I think, is the biggest thing to become or stay wealthy. And that can really backfire if you are a high income earner that spends a lot of money and appears wealthy to people on the outside, particularly as you start to run out of runway as retirement approaches. It can be very difficult to all of a sudden go from a high flying lifestyle to a more modest one. So again, at the end of the day, the wealthier people have might have access to more tax planning opportunities, more professional advice, which is unfortunate. But there's great resources out there for people, regardless of their income or regardless of their net worth or investable assets, to learn about personal finance for free. 
there are independent financial planners whose time is worth the same amount of money to somebody regardless of what their wealth is. And I think the best thing that anybody can do at any age or stage is just educate themselves about their finances. And that's going to help them to make better financial decisions for themselves and their family in the long run. And would you be able to recommend some resources online that you find to be reliable and reputable sources of information for those that would like to continue to educate themselves sure. when it comes to financial planning, retirement planning, investing? Just, you, I mean, you've been in this for decades now. I don't mean to make you sound old. <laughs> you don't look old. <laughs> but just from your wealth of experience, I'm sure there are certain go-tos that either you use yourself or that you find mm-hmm. continuously recommending because you know if you lead someone to this and this resource, they are in good hands. Yeah. I'll say that the Canada Revenue Agency website, in my opinion, is actually a wealth of information related to tax stuff. And there's a lot of really well laid out layperson's terms information about tax things on the CRA's website. Not that I would encourage people to get their tax planning advice from CRA, who wants you to pay the most tax (laughs) possible. But when it comes to learning about tax-related concepts, I find they've got a, a lot of really good information. Service Canada is the government organization that administers the Canada Pension Plan and the Old Age Security, which most Canadians are going to be entitled to. And some Canadians, especially those who are lower income or have less assets, are going to rely on more than perhaps their own investments. So Service Canada has got great information about CPP, old age security, the guaranteed income supplement, which is a government means-tested benefit for low-income seniors. So great info there just to learn about, especially given how few people know how much they're even going to get from CPP and old age security. I'm biased. Look, I write for a number of different publications, but Money Sense is one that I write for weekly. Money Sense has a lot of great information in the form of sort of long form articles, Q&A type stuff that you can use to learn about personal finance. I mean, it's all free. There's no paywall. So great resource. Beyond that, I find that a couple of the banks, RBC and CIBC in particular, have some pretty good resources just about different personal finance topics. If you were to Google a particular topic and add in a bank name, a lot of them will put out like little sort of one, two, three pagers for their customers and for their advisors as well. So good stuff out there too. And again, the more information you can absorb from sources like that, as well as professionals in your life, the the more you can know which questions to ask and what are some of the considerations to make yourself better off financially. Awesome. All right. And to finish things off, can you tell us more about where we can see your work again and, and tell us more about your practice? Yeah. So like I said, Money Sense, I write 52 weeks a year. Once a week, I publish articles with Money Sense Financial Post. I generally write a monthly column. I do a lot of work these days with the Toronto Star as part of their Millennial Money series, writing for more of a millennial audience, as well as interviews with the Star and the Globe and a lot of other different publications. As mentioned, we've got a blog on our website where we consolidate all the writing that I do. That's objectivefinancialpartners.com. We work with clients all over Canada and all over the world. 
a lot of Canadian expats that are living and working in other countries who plan to retire to Canada eventually as well. And we are one of the largest fee-only financial planning firms in Canada. We're a team of certified financial planners and tax accountants as well who do tax planning, tax returns, and big focus, as mentioned, on retirement planning. Gotcha. I did not know that you specialize in a sense of with expats. I get that question periodically, and I know it's a very complex area. (laughs) It's a weird niche that we've developed over the years. And it's really cool because I live in, in Pickering, Ontario. I was born in Markham, Ontario, and my life has stayed in a pretty small sphere, you know, Cornell. And I love living vicariously through these people who have gone <laughs> off to live in weird and wondrous yeah. places like the United Arab Emirates or Singapore or Iraq or Africa or South America. I mean, it's kind of cool. It's a fun challenge, I'm sure. Hard to get advice as well on how to plan for an eventual return to Canada, but fun clients to work with for sure. Very interesting. So not just US, but it sounds like, because obviously there's... Mostly outside the US, actually. Okay. Okay. Great to know. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've I've definitely gotten these questions before, like, oh, hey, I used to work out in the US and now I'm going to Canada. How does it now work with my investments? I had the 401k and, you know, like it's a whole can of worms as you know, better than I. Oh, sure. I and just lots know of people, the other <laughs> way, U.S. citizens that have moved here and, you know, settling into Canada and yes. getting used to the rules. But so, no, we work a lot of cross-border Canada, U.S. clients as well, but great to know lots outside North America also. Awesome. Well, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, because I get these questions and for a lot of questions, I can either answer them or I can at least refer people that, that person to yeah. someone that, okay, I'm not an expert in this, but here's someone that I know really hones in on this. And the expat thing is one that I haven't had a good answer for to refer someone to. So that's great to hear that that this is actually an area or one of the areas that you guys have actually also specialized in. So great to hear. That's wonderful, Jason. Well, thank you so much for coming on again. It's great seeing you and and catching up. And until next time. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me, Cornell. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please share it with someone that you think may find it useful. And of course, leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is always super appreciated as well. I'd like to end with a big thanks to two of our sponsors who, apart from my investing course, literally keep the entire Build Wealth Canada podcast and website free for you. Our first sponsor is BMO ETFs. Do you know why asset allocation ETFs have become so popular? Asset allocation explains over 90% of the variation in a portfolio's quarterly returns. So it's no wonder Canadian investors are turning to these ETFs. Today's sponsor, BMO ETFs, offers these innovative all-in-one solutions with the BMO All Equity ETF, ZEQT, BMO Growth ETF, ZGRO, BMO Balanced ETF, ZBAL, BMO Conservative ETF, ZCON, and more. BMO developed these to help provide investors with ETFs that offer broad diversification and they're also low cost and simple to use. These ETFs invest in a number of underlying index-based ETFs and are rebalanced automatically back to your set asset allocation or mix of stocks and bonds. They offer a hands-free approach to investing that is built on disciplined weights to provide exposure to different geographies and sectors all in one solution. BMO actually offers eight asset allocation ETFs, and you can learn more at BMOETFs.com. I'd also like to thank Passive, the investing tool that I use for my entire investment portfolio. You can get your free account in Passive over at Build Wealth Canada. 
.ca slash free. And you can see my portfolio and what ETFs I buy within Passive over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash portfolio. Passive is literally the number one tool that I consistently use to manage all my investments as it lets me immediately see what I'm holding too much and too little of in my portfolio and it automatically calculates how much I need to buy of each ETF to get me back to my target asset allocation across all my household's accounts. Then if I want, in a couple of clicks, I can have Passive buy the investments that I'm holding too little of across all my and my wife's accounts without me having to log in and out of each account to manually do the trades myself. My other favorite feature is to be able to see the performance of my entire household's investment portfolio across all our accounts in just a mouse click instead of manually having to add everything up across all our accounts just to see how we're doing. They have a free account that you can use to try them out. And if you are a Questrade user like me, you can also get their premium account for free. So it's a complete no-brainer. And I've personally been using them for years at this point. So I can definitely vouch for them as they have literally become my number one favorite tool for managing my investments as they've saved me dozens of hours when managing and optimizing my investment portfolio. Definitely check them out. They are a fantastic Canadian company. And you can get your free account by going to Build Wealth Canada dot ca slash free again that's build wealth canada dot ca slash free thanks for listening to the build wealth canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca dot